Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. This is a special episode. I'm going to read parts of the novel Tom Buchanan Misunderstood, available on Amazon.com. Chapter 1. Beautiful Fool. East Egg, New York, 1922. When I was a child, my father would tousle my hair, hoist me in the air, and say, Your four older brothers got all the brains, didn't they? And the looks. But you're the tough one. So, in an effort to help me develop what I had going for me, he ordered them to blindside me. As I walked home from school, from around corners, they'd take turns springing and tackling me. These ambushes went on for a month, until one day, Lucas dropped down on me from a tree. I was expecting something like this because this was the fourth time he'd come from above. Fifty pounds heavier, he landed on my shoulders and crushed me to the ground. Except on that day, I fainted right, he twisted midair, I bolted left, and he flailed. I was intact. He collapsed on his ankle, and I winced for him as his foot folded sideways beneath him. His face grew pale and sick. Are you okay? I asked. Enraged, he shrieked an Apache whoop before lurching at me. All my life, I've been able to sense when people are going to lose their tempers. So even before Lucas attacked, as he hobbled about, avoiding stepping down on his twisted ankle, his face kept contorting in involuntary sniffles, I sensed exactly when he would strike. Just as he almost seized me, I dropped to all fours. He tripped over me, his face crashing into a gopher hole. And then he was silent. Lucas? Cringing, I approached his still body, his rump still stuck up in the air. I pulled his face out of the ground and turned him over. He looked dazed. At least he isn't dead. Lucas? The blood on his face was speckled with dirt. I couldn't tell if his teeth were loose. But when I touched his cheek... He seized my ankle. And that is when the real beatdown began. Lucas quietly ignored Father's instructions after that, and by the time I was 10 years old, I was wiry, hard-muscled, and fast, and my four older brothers stopped ambushing me, too. But let me back up to when I was six in 1898. That was the year we moved out of the roughest neighborhood of New York. We grew up rich, but our block had declined and instead went west to a farm near Deadwood, South Dakota. Even though I was only a second grader, I remember Father saying, I read that the frontier is closed. We're going to see if that's true or if there is still time. Meanwhile, the U.S. had gotten into a war in Cuba. Like every other six-year-old boy, I wanted to go, but it was over before it started. We decimated the brutal Spaniards in just a hundred days. Three years later... The hero of the war, a Dakota cowboy with ties to New York, was the President of the United States. We mourned his predecessor, a man my parents loved, and we wished the Rough Rider well. He's just like us, my father said. In his honor, it was years before we moved back to New York. Nineteen years later, when the Great War came, my four brothers and I all volunteered. Lucas actually got in the war in 16, a full year before Wilson declared war. Then the rest of us joined. 
We thought we'd be covered in glory. We did not know what a bloodbath it was going to be. Right before they sent us off to die, I was training in Alabama, and I met this spiffy Sheba. Her name was Daisy Faye, beautiful, blonde, and with gams. Oh, she was keen, and no dumb Dora either. The brains on that girl. Everyone knew she was the berries. Except she was spoiled. She was seeing three guys a day. Courtship had degenerated pathetically in just the last five years, with drowsy chaperones not doing their jobs, and young men and women loving each other frantically as though the world were coming to an end. But even with all of the terrifying preparations for war, the people of Montgomery still felt that gentlemen callers should make old-fashioned front porch calls, and Daisy was booked constantly because she was gorgeous, and yes, because she was clever without being an egghead. Had she ever picked up a real book and not just dime novels, she would have been scary as any German, and most men would have run in fear. High class and risque, gorgeous and brainy, terrifying. Always unpredictable, as an 18-year-old, she did what she wanted with no supervision. She was the daughter of the old judge, the most important cat in town. At the time, I thought, he's such a stiff. On the surface, strict as an Old Testament prophet, always standing ramrod erect, older than Moses, with a face like a statue of an ancient king. Now I realize he was prematurely aged. His empire was fractured, and he was secretly, desperately broke. Each of his four daughters was wilder than the last. He'd married the wrong gal, too, which explains why they fought. And rumor had it that Daisy wasn't his. But that was just jealous gossip. Most likely. Given how wild her sisters were, by the time she was in high school, Daisy had to act with complete recklessness just to stand out. So she danced with half of the soldiers who trained in Montgomery and tantalized them with whispers, implying promises while committing nothing. She stayed out past three, and the rumors spread like water lilies. Maybe Daisy kissed a dozen privates the week they all got sent off to the trenches in France to die. When her friends whispered questions to her about this, she'd say, Is that what the boring people are saying? Oh, how I wish people had lives of their own so that they wouldn't talk about me. She'd sigh and then wink. I hope she did kiss those soldiers. They had nothing else to look forward to. In a desperate attempt to give her skills to fall back on, like those girls going to medical school, Daisy's father enrolled her in a college class. But then people said she skips it every day and drinks highballs. They even said she kept a flask in church and took little nips. No, she'd say. Why do you listen to such scandalous talk? And she'd open up her prayer book and ignore everyone nearby. She was just chaotic, excitable, and moody enough to make a man crazy with passion. I really loved her. In the run-up to my battalion getting deployed, I swear she doubled how many guys she saw each day to six. Six! Six men would come to her front porch. They'd talk. And she'd promise them everything with her eyes and gestures. But her words were all nonsense like, Your mom must think you're so handsome in your uniform. Or, 
Your father must think you're really brave. And most brazen of all, when you make it to Paris, would you send me a bottle of vieux galoshes? When these men, who had just met a woman unlike any other, who appeared to float, who was funny and yet proper, who changed identities faster than a Hollywood starlet, well, these men would ship off to France like people waking from a dream, but still half asleep with wonder. Then, they felt they'd either come back and be the hero, or they'd die face down in the mud. Because in between resting in a gully without blankets and watching your feet rot because you're standing in contaminated water for a week and struggling to get your gas mask on at 3 a.m. so your lungs wouldn't explode because the Huns were sending over mustard gas, well, what did you have to do other than write Daisy letters outlining the bare facts? I know what Daisy's bows were doing because that's what I was doing. I never complained about anything when I wrote. That's because when you sought to join Daisy's world, you found that you too were playing a part. That part was tough masculinity. I was fighting, my competitors and I were fighting to save Daisy and American motherhood. So I told her about prepping my rifle, keeping up the squad spirit, and drilling them hard when they went soft. I shot at the Huns and carried my bleeding friends to the medics. And when I rested, I dreamed of all the great things I would do when I returned home. I would do them for her, for Mrs. Daisy Buchanan. Like many of her admirers, I wrote Daisy frequently, and my wife kept seven boxes of these letters, the heartfelt dreams of young men, I was 25, some of whom did not come back. She cherished their longings, not because she remembers the names of any of those huckleberries or factory hands, but because they adored her. Selfish girl, I'd like to burn those boxes. Sometimes, when we fight, she makes a point of walking out in the middle and going up to one of her suites and rereading them. And then, hours later, as we eat cold steak together, she drops little hints such as, maybe I still have time. All of this flashed through my mind in an instant, just as it had yesterday, the day before, and every day for the last year. And when I realized I was ruminating, I decided to forget the past and go back to playing with Pamela Gracie, my three-year-old daughter. Because I always wanted a daughter to spoil, and because we were laughing and having a great time. On the manicured West polo field, I was giving my angel a ride on her favorite pony, Shaggy. And then, guess who had to come along and ruin it? She liked to dress in a skimpy white golf skirt and sleeveless blouse these days because of her new friend, the rising golf star, what's her name? I can't keep track of all Daisy's showy friends. She doesn't like them anyway. She just uses them as ornaments. Anyway, it wasn't even a real golf garment. It was actually specially made by a Parisian designer who used only the most expensive French silk. It cost 10 times as much as an RCA Victrola. But Daisy never played golf. Tennis, she said airily, blowing smoke from her imported cigarillo, is more my racket. I know what all of your rackets are, I replied. 
Now she interrupted Pamela, Gracie, and me. Mama, Gracie cried. My beautiful little fool, Daisy cooed. Don't call her that, I said. Daisy looked at me coldly. Blessed precious. On a dime, she doted warmly on her only child and cupped Gracie's chin as our girl held on to the pony's shaggy mane. Do you like your pony? Yes, Gracie said. I made sure we bought the softest pony for you. Too bad your father doesn't believe in saddles, Daisy said. I'm right here with her, I said wearily, glancing at the morning sun, which was just peeking over the botanical garden of flowers and shrubs we'd imported from three continents just beyond the polo field. Today's going to be a hot one, I thought, although I'd been wrong before. The sun's getting hotter every year, or maybe it's just the opposite. The sun's getting cooler every year. She could fall. I'm holding on to her. Darling, precious Will, she dropped to sotto voce. Break her neck if you let go. I won't let go. I swept the plush meadow with my soul. And the grass is thick. Daisy gave me a dirty look and glared at Gracie as if to say, let's not argue in front of our three-year-old. What do you want? I asked Daisy. It must be lovely being an unemployed, healthy young man who has nothing more important to do than play with ponies at eight in the morning, Daisy said. It's Saturday, I began hastily. A careless man, she said in her light way. I'm going golfing with Jordan this afternoon, she said. Jordan, I remember the name. That was her name. I like that girl. Only 24, she'd come in fourth in a professional golf tournament last year and was on track to do even better this year. Angelic in her white outfit, she only had kind things to say about every other lady in the league. She read novels in French, donated her weddings to a veteran's hospital, and went on all of her dates supervised by her married aunt, a gorgeous lady who was 40, who handed out prayer cards to children. I should have married a woman like Jordan, I thought. Unless she cheats at golf. That can blow up in your face. There were rumors. Fine, I said to Daisy. Daisy was studying me skeptically. Now I wondered if my face was giving me away, as I imagined Jordan's taut, athletic body glistening with a healthy sheen as she arched before teeing off, sending the ball in a perfect arc across a delicate blue sky, where it soared before dropping like a shooting star. And I'm inviting Cousin Nick over for dinner, Daisy said. Nick's a drunk, I replied. You should talk, Daisy said. Yes, I should, I said. I never have more than two. Not since France, when we all thought we were marching into Armageddon. I did a lot of things near Paris that I'd rather forget about. Nick knocks back the most expensive gasoline we've got like it's water. Daisy's jaw dropped theatrically, and with a sharp glance, she indicated our child, who was absentmindedly stroking Shaggy and absorbing everything we were saying. S-O-R-R-Y, I spelled. Sorry, exclaimed Gracie. Damn, I thought. Nick conducts himself like a gentleman 
and not like a brute, Daisy said, and she gave me a disapproving look. A hulking brute, she added. Great. Another evening listening to Nick trying to sell me bonds when the damn country is paying down the national debt that we ran up in the war. I keep telling him to get to sell stocks instead. I told him I put a fortune in Ford, Gillette, and RCA. Since the depression of 1920-21 ended, everyone's hiring, everyone's buying cars, bridges, and record players. Everyone's feeling great. Obnoxious dance crazes are sweeping America. Everyone's boozing it up, dancing with strangers, necking in their struggle buggy because prohibition, a dumb idea I think we got from Russia, just make adults want to sneak a spree. But does Nick listen? No. I'm up 30% since last summer, but it's all short-term bond trading with Mr. Splificated. Fine, I said to Daisy. Is that all you can say? She perched her hips, her fists atop her hips. Her lovely fists. Her soft, shimmering, sleek, felicitous fingers curled together. These past few weeks, Daisy was actually looking the most beautiful I'd ever seen her. Despite her attitude this morning, I wondered if playing golf, tennis, and swimming with Jordan wasn't excellent for her. Always a willowy beauty, she was now developing a hint of muscle tone, and her immaculate complexion was bronzing beautifully. Always unpredictable, she appeared to be adopting a new identity as Hollywood's most mysterious starlet, a woman unlike any other, the first one of her kind. Momentarily, I felt tongue-tied. I remembered the effervescent girl who somehow, amidst all of those other soldiers, for reasons unknown, had selected me. I could come with you, I said huskily. Her eyebrows narrowed quizzically. What are you thinking, Daisy? I wondered. She didn't speak. Instead, she scrutinized me. How are you feeling? Who are you? What have we done to each other? What will we do? I thought. No, she said softly. You've never played tennis. I can swing a polo stick, I said. She laughed. I felt my face get hot. She always did that in front of Gracie, laughed at my ideas, and told me no. I felt humiliated. In the meantime, Gracie was stirring impatiently in the saddle. We needed to get riding, or the little girl was going to get antsy. How hard can tennis be? I asked. She laughed again. We'd beat you so bad, she said. You'd hate it. What were your plans? Yell at you, I thought. I was boiling like a cooked clam now. Go to Wall Street, I guess. It's Saturday, Daisy said. So, I replied. The market's closed, Daisy said. I bit my tongue. There are still people I'd like to see. Who? She probed. I don't know how she does this, but I was so twisted up with rejection from tennis, not to mention her suspicious look from when I was daydreaming about Jordan, as well as her declaration that her strutting cousin was going to come over. All of that made me not know how to keep from popping my lid. All I knew was, Daisy takes but does not give. And that made me not want to tell her anything. People, I repeated. And now she gave me a hurt look. 
like that time back in Chicago when she found that I, when I confessed that I, she looked at me one more time. Tell me, her eyes demanded. I couldn't think. I was splashing back to past guilt. I felt such hot rage, shame, and fear of getting found out. Fine, she said. Now she whirled and stomped away. Daisy, I called after her athletic form and her luxurious enchanting hair, the color of the sun. How I wish we could go back to the first day we met, five years ago, before they sent me to the French abattoir, before Daisy collected a library of letters from six admirers a day, before we married and each had made fatal errors. But the past is dead, isn't it? Daddy, Gracie was tugging my arm with one hand even as she gripped Shaggy's manicured mane. Manicured because everything always has to be perfect on the surface in the house of Buchanan. Daisy, I said softly, picturing that wild, carefree 19-year-old siren from 1917. Who was the real Daisy? And where the hell was she really going this afternoon? On one of her sprees? Daddy, Gracie was pulling at my riding clothes. Even though the morning was still young, I could tell that today would be hot, muggy, and itchy. It was true. What I had read, the sun must indeed be cooling, which somehow made us unbearably hot. We are all going to roast in hell, I thought. Blessed precious, I said, and I jostled the pony. As Shaggy trotted, Gracie patty-caked the animal's sleek, muscular back in absolute delight. I love you, Gracie, I said. I hope your life will be good. Just don't make a single mistake. Because if you do, you'll be on the wrong track forever, and then it's all hopeless. I love you too, Daddy, my daughter said happily, bouncing bareback as we three simple beasts moved along the polo field toward the world garden of flowers and into the blistering sun. End of chapter one. Thank you for listening. This book is available on Amazon. Until next time.